see you guys. Um, it's great to be here with you this morning. A warm welcome if you're joining us uh, online. Uh, let's just take a moment to, to pray as we get into things. Lord, we thank you that we do not live by bread alone, uh, but by every word that comes from you. We pray that you speak to us afresh as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just recently I sat down with the kids to uh, watch that classic tale, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And uh, originally it was a, a book by Dr. Seuss, and it made it into a movie uh, starring one of the most terrifying versions of the Grinch ever played, oh, there it is, um, by Jim Carrey. Uh, it's truly uh, worth watching just for the makeup and, and just how terrifying he is. Um, but Dr. Seuss's version opens with these words. It says this, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why, no one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that most, the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Um, and this morning, we're really going to be looking at the heart, and we're going to be looking at this theme of love. Uh, the story unfolds, and as it does so, it does what it says on the box. It's about how the Grinch stole Christmas. Out of spite for the season and everyone having a good time at Christmas, uh, in his loneliness and his misery, the Grinch sets out to take all the presents, all the food, and just generally to steal Christmas. And in the movie version, uh, there's a kind of backstory um, for the Grinch. Um, it's kind of about how his secluded and grumpy life has stemmed from the story of him being bullied and shamed uh, as a little Grinch. His heart has been diminished. He turns bitter and he focuses upon himself and his own pain. And the Grinch, of course, is a grimacing, green, grumpy caricature. But really, uh, at the heart of the story, there's this kind of something true about the human condition. The Grinch paints this picture of a life turned inward, of a heart grown cold, of a self-centered existence and a diminished life. His story is a, a caricature of a life consumed by self, a life turned totally inward, distorted by loneliness and by hurt and by fear. And so this children's story actually touches on one of the themes at the very heart of the story of the Bible. This idea that we're creatures made for love. Not only this, but that our love can become distorted, it can become damaged, it can become misdirected. And like the Grinch, we have a propensity for, uh, you know, that we can become diminished, that our hearts can be hurt, and that we can hurt one another. The Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann writes beautifully about the subject, about our longing for love, what he calls communion, at the very heart of being human. And he uses this metaphor of eating, of enjoying food, to describe this longing. He talks about our desire to eat. We might think of a Christmas banquet laid out before us, ham and pavlova and fresh berries, all those good things. And uh, Schmemann says this, he says, in the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live, is given to him by God. And it's given as communion with God. All that exists is, God, is God's gift to man. 
and it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates. And in biblical language, this means he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Man is a hungry being, but he's hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. And I love that. I love the way he captures this idea of what it means to be human, that we're made for love, we're made for God. Uh, This hunger, this desire for communion with God is hardwired into us. In the opening story of Scripture, we hear about Adam and Eve wandering in the the garden with God, uh, relating with God as creatures made for love. Humanity is made in God's image to reflect God's love in the world, to image God's love. And this imaging of God's love in the world is at the very heart of what it means to be a human being. And the Genesis story also acknowledges that it's not good for humans to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. God creates humans to share this love with one another. Jesus himself sums up all the law and the prophets when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this theme of love is at the very heart of Scripture. It's at the heart of what it means for us to be human. And yet, at the same time, also in Scripture and in our experience, we actually see stories that play out that are the very opposite. We see stories of envy and murder, of greed, of warfare, of corruption, and of hate. And so this fracturing of relationship, this violation of love, is actually a counter-narrative to the story of goodness and the goodness of creation and God's intention for humanity. And it's for this reason that the story of the Bible isn't simply one that just speaks of creation, but it also speaks of redemption. It tells a story of God rescuing and restoring humanity, a story of God bringing new creation in the midst of the old. And that's the story that we're preparing to celebrate as we journey at the moment through Advent toward Christmas. So right now we're celebrating Advent together, and this morning we're exploring this theme of Advent love. We're continuing exploring this theme through the book of Revelation, and we're looking at chapter 1, where John uh, greets the churches in Asia, and we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be a people of love, and particularly a people of fearless love? In the opening chapter of Revelation, John greets the churches throughout Asia, and he opens his letter with these words. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who was, uh, sorry, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, this book of Revelation does what it says. It reveals. Um, it's apocalyptic literature, which pulls back the curtain on reality. And here at the very beginning of John's greeting to these churches throughout Asia, he places this vision of God at the very center of reality. John names God as the one who is and who was and who is to come. This God is the I Am who reveals himself to Moses in the story of Exodus. This God is the eternal one, the one who is timeless, who simply is, the one from whom all existence flows. 
And so this picture of God at the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, is a big theme in the book of Revelation right throughout. This theme reminds these persecuted Christians in Asia who are struggling to follow the way of Jesus that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at the center of the story. God was before the very beginning of creation. God is present with us now, and God has the future in hand. And what I really want for us to see this morning as we look at this passage together is the way which John draws our eyes to this reality, this vision of God. Twice here in the section, twice in the greeting, he does this. Right at the beginning, and then in verse 8, he also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So it's really clear here that he's wanting us to get this point. What's going on? John's painting this picture of reality with God at the very center. And I think that the book of Revelation really is, at its heart, an invitation to worship. You can read the whole thing, in a way, as a call to worship. It's a summons to place God at the center of our lives, to discover as we worship God, we'll flourish, we will grow in love, and we'll discover fullness of life. And as we read Revelation, we might ask the question, who's at the center of the story? Who's at the center? Well, I'm, I'm currently spending three years of my life uh, writing a PhD on the doctrine of sin. <laughs> yeah, so at parties when people say, hey, um, nice to meet you, my name, you know, what's your name? And, yep, okay. And then the next question is inevitably, so what do you do? Oh, I'm studying a PhD. What? Oh, I'm doing a PhD. Oh, cool. Oh, that's really interesting. What's it about? Oh, theology. Oh, theology, eh? Oh, cool. What, what kind of area? Oh, um, doctrine. <laughs> <clears throat> Anything in particular? <laughs> oh, well, um, sin? Oh. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, yeah, really awkward. Um, not really a great way to sort of start a conversation. And sin really is a thoroughly misunderstood word. Um, often it's thought about simply doing naughty things um, when we think about sin, um, or we don't think about it at all, or we associate it with like massive kind of guilt um, and shame and kind of want to do away with it. But as I've been kicking this idea around, one of the most compelling images for thinking about what sin is is this idea that it's turning away from God, our very source of life, and turning in on ourselves. Again, to quote Schmemann, he says this. He says, The sin of all sins, the truly original sin, is not a transgression of rules, but first of all, the deviation of man's love and his alienation from God. That man prefers something, the world, himself, to God. This is the only real sin, and in it all sins become natural and inevitable. This sin destroys the true life of man. And so Schmemann describes sin as a kind of turning away from God, our very source of life. And to me that makes sense, that uh, when we become kind of unplugged from the very source of life, that we, we've diminished. Martin Luther, one of the great theologians of the Reformation era, he described sin as being curved in on oneself. That was a key image for him. And we might think of the Grinch once again, focusing on himself, his feelings, what was going on for him, his hurt, uh, withdrawing more and more into his own kind of isolated world. And the irony is, though, that the more we focus on ourselves, 
the more we lose ourselves. John Calvin, another great reformer, made this point too, that we only truly understand ourselves and know ourselves when we truly understand and know God, when we come to know God, that these things are kind of really tightly linked. And it's because we're made for God. We're made for worship. We're made for love and for relationship. The story of the Grinch is a story of a life turned in on itself, uh, and so is the story of every sinner. So is the story of every human being. It's all too easy, isn't it, to place ourselves at the very center of the story, to frame our life around what it is that we want, what it is that we need, to become entirely kind of um, self-focused. And so the invitation of the way of Jesus is for the center of gravity to shift from self to God and then for this to flow out to others, for the center of gravity to shift from self to God and then out to others. The Christian theologian and philosopher James K.A. Smith, he puts it really well. He talks about the human heart as a compass. He says you can't not love, right? We all love. It's why the heart is the seat and fulcrum of the human person, the engine that drives our existence. We are lovers first and foremost. If we think about this in terms of the quest or the journey metaphor, we might say that the human heart is part compass and part internal guidance system. And he goes on to say, while being human means we can't not love something ultimate, some version of the kingdom, it doesn't mean we necessarily love the right things or the true king. God has created us for himself and our hearts are designed to find their end in him. Yet many spend their days restlessly craving rival gods, frenetically pursuing rival kingdoms. The subconscious longings of our hearts are aimed and directed elsewhere. Our orientation is askew, our erotic compass malfunctions, giving us false bearings. When this happens, the results can be disastrous. And we can imagine, and we know sort of all the ways that that plays out uh, in our lives and in the world. And Revelation 1, and I think Revelation really as a whole, seeks to orient this compass of our hearts toward God, to, to true north, to draw us into worship, and John uh, particularly does this by drawing our eyes to Jesus. So as he continues in the greeting, he goes on to say, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And in these couple of sentences, John really encapsulates in a shorthand form what Jesus has done. He tells the story of Jesus in just one or two sentences here. Uh, we see, uh, first of all, he talks about Jesus being the faithful witness. And the Greek word for witness, which we translate over into English uh, here, is martyr. So it's this idea here of the faithful witness pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross. So we get that piece of the story. He talks about the firstborn of the dead, Jesus says, the firstborn of the dead. And this phrase refers to his resurrection and the way in which uh, Jesus paves the way for those who trust in him that they might share his resurrection. So we have death and we have resurrection. And finally, John uses this other phrase to describe Jesus. He's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. And here the focus is on Jesus' ascension to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And so each of these short phrases John uses to describe Jesus are kind of designed to draw our minds to the story of Jesus, to look at him, to see his life, death, 
resurrection and ascension as the very center, the very center of reality, the story that is the richest expression of God's love for us, for this world. And so the reality that John wants us to see here is that what God has done in Jesus Christ, him freeing us from our sin, and actually this setting free will involve our hearts being changed, us being turned outward in love for God and for our neighbor. John goes on to say this. He says, he's made us to be a kingdom, pre-serving his God and Father. And I want to just pick up on that notion of being priests serving God. Um, this is our vocation. I don't know on one level that might sound strange. This is our vocation. It isn't just for some particularly strange individuals who become Anglican vicars. Um, this idea of us being priests is something that we all pick up. The human vocation is to be priests in God's creation. And what that means is to image his love. This was God's intention from the beginning. And so to be priests serving God means to participate in his love. And I think this is beautifully captured uh, in another piece of scripture in 1 John chapter 4. And so I just want to read some sections of it to you, just a couple of wee sections, and invite you to listen to this connection between our worship of God, who is love, and our participation in that love as we share it in the world. And I think you, you know, really see the connection here. We find it in 1 John. So I'm going to read it through. Just invite us just to pay attention carefully to the words. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. It's like one of the most beautiful passages on love in Scripture it just connects worship of God who is love with our lives and the way we conduct ourselves and, and, and participate in that love. As we worship this God who is love, our lives will be transformed. We'll become priests who together serve this God. What might it look like in practice? 
Uh, well, for me, a beautiful example that I heard recently, this wonderful story, is the story of Father Damien of Molokai. He's known as the leper priest. And um, in the mid-19th century in Hawaii, there's this huge outbreak of leprosy. And so desperate measures were put in place. Lepers uh, were forcibly removed from their families and sent to the island of Molokai to see out their days in isolation. And so the only way in or out was by boat or by scaling sheer cliffs. So these people are really isolated, and this is a place of horrible suffering and pain. Understandably, it's a place most people wanted to avoid, but it was a man called Father Damien uh, de Voister, and he would prove to be the exception. He was a Roman Catholic priest from Belgium who volunteered to go uh, to Molokai. And so on arriving at the sleeper colony, Father Damien commented, he said this in, in some writing, uh, he found their wounds and mutilations repulsive. So he comes in, he's just completely appalled by this situation. And this is no easy place to be. Um, however, what was meant to be a visit turned into a permanent arrangement for Father Damien as his heart was captured by God's love for the people he encountered. Damien cared for the physical needs uh, and the spiritual and emotional needs of the lepers. He built houses and orphanages, served as a teacher, prayed for the sick, blessed the dying, and he even ate from the same pot as the lepers uh, in this place, sharing his entire life. In this, he followed the way of Jesus who reached out and touched people uh, who were rejected, who reached out with fearless love. Eventually, Damien himself contracted leprosy. And um, in a letter in 1886, he wrote this. He said this, Those microbes have finally settled themselves in my left leg, in my ears, and an eyebrow begins to fall. I expect soon to have my face disfigured. Having no doubt to myself of the true character of my disease, I feel calm, resigned, and happier among my people. Almighty God knows what is best, and with that conviction I say daily, your will be done. I think mean, that's outrageous, isn't it? It's outrageous. And Damien's story has inspired many other Christians to go on caring for uh, the outcast, caring for the poor, caring for the needy. And I know that's an extreme example, and extreme examples can do two things. They can inspire us, but they can also make us think, well, I, I wouldn't do that, or I don't know if I can do that. Um, so I want you to be inspired by the extreme example, but I also because I think it illustrates beautifully what fearless love looks like. But I also want you to think about your own life. Think about an everyday example. How can this fearless love be expressed in your life? We might ask the question, how might God be calling us to be people of fearless love? How can we participate in God's love? Where we are in our families, our communities, and our workplaces. And one of the ways we can do this communally right now is with these wonderful Christmas boxes, right? It was an awesome uh, way in which we can engage in love uh, for our community by engaging together in um, this wonderful project. But we also, we, so we can do it collectively, but we also might think of these ways we can do it individually in our own lives too. So John begins his letter with this glorious picture of God, uh, what God has done through Jesus, but he doesn't leave it there. He reminds the readers that he is looking for a response, and he says this. He says, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. 
what the book of Revelation does is it constantly provokes a crisis moment. It's constantly provoking a crisis moment in which the readers are invited to respond. We're invited to respond. Look is another way of saying, pay attention. See, take, you know, take notice of what's going on. Revelation paints this picture of this reality in which Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, is on the throne. This crucified one, the one who is pierced, as it's put here, will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the book of Revelation makes the point that those who reject God's love by rejecting Jesus will experience the second coming of Jesus' judgment. The tribes of the earth will wail, as John puts it. And the point is we were free to reject God's love for us. We're free to turn away. Yet the book of Revelation invites us to turn toward God, to participate in his love, to know his love deep in our bones. So to wrap up, as we read this passage in Advent, what's the invitation for us? I think it's twofold. The first is that there's an invitation for us to praise. This opening passage of Revelation calls us to worship. It invites us to thank God, to worship Him, to praise Him, to celebrate all that God has done through Christ. And so I think this Advent, there's an invitation for us to let our love for God grow, to kind of dial up the praise. There's a real invitation there for us to dial up the praise and to worship, to come and adore Him. That's the first thing. And I think the second thing that flows from this invitation is not only to praise God, but to participate in His love. This Advent and, and this Christmas, the invitation is to let our love for the people around us grow, to turn our hearts outward toward others. And we can actually pray for that. You know, so we don't just want to make it happen by our own effort, but we can actually pray, asking that the Holy Spirit will pour God's love into us, that it might flow out of us. That's something we can pray for. We're actually invited to pray for that. And I really want to encourage you to pray for that this morning, to respond. So let's just take some time up to pray together, and then we're going to share in communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've created us for love. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Thank you that even when we turn away, you demonstrate your unrelenting love and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, freeing us from sin and death. And we thank you that you invite us to share in your love and that this is possible because your love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us afresh this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.